Uh, before I do anything else, though, I want to look into the camera and say a big hello to all those that are watching online today. Come on, Heartland family, help me welcome them to church today. So there it is, uh, beginning November 5th and running all throughout uh, the month of November. And so next week, I'm going to prepare your hearts for that. I'm going to kind of get you ready, share some strategy about why we're doing this in the first place. But before we get to that, this coming weekend, come on, it's Renew, everybody, all of our ladies. So excited. Uh, this will be a record year for registration for us. So thankful for each and every one of you. And ladies, I just want you to know that this week, I'm committed to praying for you and believing that God's going to speak to you and that you're going to have a dynamic experience uh, with some incredible people speaking into your life. And uh, I know that you're going to get a lot out of it. So if you haven't registered, if you're one of the procrastinators or didn't know anything about it, it's this weekend. Go out to the table today and check it out. And uh, I know that you'll have uh, a great weekend. All right. Today, I'm going to do something that I don't normally do. Uh, I'm going to preach a message that I didn't plan. Uh, and those of you who know me, uh, you know I'm a planner. Uh, I don't like to do things spontaneously. Uh, I like my trips to be planned. I like my life to be planned. Uh, Kendra laughs because when we, we went on a trip last year, I had a binder that was laminated, like <laughs> just my personality, I guess. And I wasn't always this way, but I got married and she turned me into this. So this is her fault. Um, and that's what a good wife does. Amen, all, all the ladies in the room. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I want you to get them out today and uh, go to the book of Genesis with me. I've been thinking about what I was going to teach you uh, starting in January for about three months already. Uh, I just like plans, but two weeks ago yesterday, uh, Kendra and I woke up uh, to the worst terror attack to hit Israel since the Holocaust. And uh, as, as I processed everything that was happening, if I'm just honest with you, I thought to myself... Uh, I don't know, should I talk about this? And I, I pretty much had an internal conversation with myself where I disqualified myself about talking about this due to not feeling educated enough or qualified enough. And uh, on Tuesday morning, uh, if, you, if you know me, I, my Mondays are dedicated to sermon uh, prep. So I spend the whole day on Monday kind of getting ready for the weekend uh, in advance. Kind of already know what I'm talking about going into the week, but I just spend the entire day preparing. So I did that this past Monday, spent the entire day preparing. And on Tuesday morning, uh, I got a phone call from my dad uh, urging me to consider talking about uh, this subject of what's going on in the world right now. And I have to tell you that he doesn't do that often. I can probably think of maybe two or three times over the last four years that he has called me or told me or suggested to me, I think you should lean into something. Uh, and anytime he does that, I take notice. And of course, my immediate thought was, why couldn't you have called me yesterday morning uh, <laughs> instead of today? Um, but over the last five days, and I really mean that, it's taken me five full days. Uh, I have worked really hard to prepare a message that I want to share with you today uh, to talk about everything that's going on in our world right now. This attack upon the nation of Israel was premeditated. It was an assault by land, it was an assault by air, and it was an assault by sea. It occurred on a Saturday morning in which Israel was in Sabbath. So I want you to think about it. People are sleeping, their technology is off. As a result, they are more vulnerable at this particular moment. And Hamas came across lines and went into military homes, they went into, or went into military bases, they went into homes, they went into police stations, and... They went into the open streets, and they murdered over 1,300 people and took well over 200 others captive. In addition, the Jews were finishing a week-long Jewish holiday. It was a time off uh, from work. It was one of the most joyous weeks uh, on the, the Hebrew calendar. This would be like the equivalent of something happening here for you around Thanksgiving or around Christmas uh, for, for us. And... As we're watching this, we're seeing men do the most horrific and horrible things to civilians, to women, and to children. The, those killed in this attack was around 1,300 in a nation of 8.5 million people. To give you some context, the United States has about 340 million people. I've heard some comparisons to the terror attacks of 
For them, it would be the equivalent of 40,000 people dying on 9-11 if you look at, at their, um, their population. And after this, Israel's president declared war for the first time in 50 years plus one day from Yom Kippur uh, in 1973, the Yom Kippur War. And all of this that we're looking at right now has massive implications for our world, uh, really in every way, but especially spiritually. It has sparked an international focus on the nation of Israel that today I just feel like it's significant enough that I need to address this with you. What has been surprising to me, and maybe shouldn't be surprising, has been the amount of anti-Israel rhetoric that you hear on the news, that you read about, that you see. And uh, it's it's been surprising to me to, to hear the cries from literally around the world. And I think it's important that we understand the cultural reality. I think it's important that we understand the spiritual reality that we're facing right now. That the hour that we're living in is an urgent hour. And so what I want to do this morning is try to answer some of the questions about Israel, about Hamas, and about what the world is facing right now. Some of my own team came to me, I don't know, throughout the last week and said, what's going on? Why, what does all this mean? Questions that they had. And, and I want to say in, in real humility that this is not a subject that I felt like I was so strong on and that I felt so qualified to teach on. Uh, but I want you to know that I've really tried to immerse myself uh, in study. And so what I think I'm going to present today are maybe some of the answers to some of the questions that people are asking. But before I get too deep into that uh, or begin to answer some of those questions, I want to give you a brief Bible lesson, if I can today. In Genesis 12, there is a man named Abram. Abram comes from a pagan family. He has a pagan father. And through this miraculous set of events, God saves him and delivers him. And then God speaks to Abram one day and tells him that you need to leave your family. Uh, You need to leave the area that you're living in right now. And you need to go into a new land that I'm going to show you. This is a very important land. It's a land that I'm going to bless you with. In fact, today, over 4,000 years later, this land is still uh, being talked about. It's still being fought over. And God honors Abram's obedience and God honors uh, him as he leaves. And in Genesis 15, the Lord comes to him and creates an everlasting covenant with Abram. It's one of the most important covenants that we see in Scripture. It was an unconditional covenant, meaning that, that God would create it and, and cause it to happen and cause it to be kept. It was an unbreakable covenant promise, because whenever God makes a promise, uh, he always keeps his promise. Amen, everybody? This covenant is known today as the Abrahamic covenant. I want to read it to you. It's in Genesis 11. It says, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I'm going to show you, and I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the people on earth will be blessed. The covenant, as you go on to read a little bit, and we'll read a little bit more in a moment, but the covenant had three pieces to it. There was a land covenant, there was a lineage covenant, and there was a Lord covenant. The the covenant promised real estate, that was the land portion. The covenant promised lineage, that a son would come, Uh, from the line of Abraham and Isaac uh, and and Jacob, who would become Israel later on in Scripture. And and the land piece include, and a Lord covenant, by the way, that that he would be their God. Uh, The land piece included dimensions. It included property that was specific. It was a literal promise, not just to be spiritualized or to be metaphoric in nature, but to be taken literally. And in that land and through that people, the the Lord would come. All of this, of course, to pave the way for Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of the Jewish system. This land, this promised land, 
becomes a central focus of the Bible. The Old Testament speaks about this promised land over 2,000 times. The New Testament speaks about this land over 700 times. This land is crucial to political history today, and it is crucial to prophetic history. Eventually, under the leadership of Joshua, the Israelites take possession of the land, though at no time has Israel taken possession of the entire land that has been promised to them. Scholars believe that there will eventually be a fulfillment of the scriptures where Israel will occupy their homeland to the fullest extent. But going back to the story, uh, God makes this covenant. And so years begin to pass, and Abraham and Sarah become very old, unable to have children of their own in their own eyes. And so this covenant has been made to them uh, that includes their descendants And yet it seems that there's no way that this promise is going to be able to come into fulfillment. How can the earth be filled with his descendants if he has no sons? And so Sarah comes up with a scheme for Abraham to take a second wife, thus providing her with a surrogate for a child. And Abraham listened to his wife, and he should not have listened to his wife. Let me rephrase this. You should listen to your wife, but not if she brings home another woman. (laughs) Fair enough? Okay. So he takes this woman as his wife, and her name is Hagar. She is an, an Egyptian unbeliever, and she has a son named Ishmael. In fact, you can read a promise that God speaks about Ishmael In Genesis 16, this is what the Lord says about Ishmael. says, he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all of his brothers. Ishmael later on would go on to have 12 sons, just like Jacob, uh, his ancestry would follow, would later have 12 sons and become Israel instead of Jacob. Meanwhile, two chapters later, God tells Abram that he's going to have a son, and he fulfills his promise, to which Abram laughs, because this whole thing is kind of funny at this point. This is comical to him. How am I going to be able to do this? We're old in age, but Sarah eventually gives birth to a son named Isaac. So please understand this. For those of you who are not familiar with this story, you now have two sons, You have Isaac and you have Ishmael, both about 14 years apart. You've got two wives, you've got two sons, but you have one covenant. So who gets the land? Who will the promise be fulfilled through? Well, as expected, because of his promise, God rejects Ishmael and God chooses Isaac, the son of Sarah, to receive the Abrahamic covenant. Now, I want to pause there for just a moment. Don't forget this because we're going to come back to this in just a moment. All right? Roughly 2,600 years later, according to tradition, there is a man named Muhammad. In 610, he is visited by an angel that he claims is Gabriel. As he's visited, this angel, supposedly being Gabriel, informs Muhammad that he is a messenger of God and begins prophesying and presenting to him a new world religion called Islam. The essence of Islam is basically this. It comes from Muhammad, is that the Hebrew scriptures are wrong. That God actually chose Hagar. He did not choose Sarah as the son of the promise. The son of the promise of the Abrahamic covenant is Ishmael. It is not Isaac. In fact, Muhammad actually takes the story of Genesis 22 and he attempts to twist it, to change it, to change. He says that it was Ishmael who went with Abraham and was going to be sacrificed. It was not Isaac. He says Ishmael was the one that was willing to lay down his life when Abraham went to sacrifice him. It says what Islam actually does is it takes the storyline of the Bible 
and it twists it around. And as a result of this, Islam claims that the descendants of Isaac are not God's chosen people. Jewish people are not God's chosen people. It's not who the promise was given to. The promise was given to Muslims. Therefore, the land, the lineage, the promise does not belong to the Jews, and therefore we are to worship Allah, and we do not worship Jesus. As a result, there has been a war about this that has raged since the early 500s AD. Who owns the land? whose lineage is the inheritance, and ultimately, who is Lord. Friends, what I want you to know right off the bat this morning is that the battle that is raging is not just a battle about land. This is a spiritual battle. This is a spiritual battle that will continue until Jesus Christ returns. The Palestinians today believe that they are descendants of Ishmael and that the Jews are descendants of Isaac. And what this brings about is a lot of questions that people have. Because of our obsessions with ourselves as a nation, we tend to not fully understand what's happening in this conflict right now. So I'm going to try to help on some level today to to do that. And to do that, I want to answer some questions that I think are important to answer. Number one question that I want to talk about is this. What has brought this current war about? What I want you to know right now is what we're seeing is a war. This is the beginnings of it. This is not a conflict. This is not a military operation. This is a war. We need to be honest with ourselves. Many major countries are looking at this conflict and deciding whether or not to engage in all of this. I just read, I think this morning, that China is even considering and starting to send warships off the coast of the region. Many, many countries are doing this. Of course, the major players involve Hamas, Hezbollah, and Israel, but other countries are threatening. Turkey, Russia, Syria, Lebanon, Iran, the U.S., the U.K., maybe even now China, have begun to move major military vessels off the shores of Israel. This is a powder keg, in all sense of the word, waiting to explode that could push us into a third world war. But what this has brought about, or what has brought this about, is decades of unprovoked attacks against Israel by terrorists known as Hamas. Hamas, and many of you may know this, but Hamas is a terrorist organization that has taken control of the Gaza Strip, and up until this point, every attempt by Israel to talk in good faith has been refused by Hamas. In fact, Hamas is unapologetically founded and committed to one singular purpose, that is the liberation of the land and the destruction of Israel and the Jewish people. I would ask you today, how do you negotiate with an organization who in the preamble of their covenant for their state states that the reason that they exist is to destroy the entity known as Israel and to kill every Jew. I want to read you a quote by Mahoud al-Zahar, who was the former foreign affairs minister of Palestine. This is what he recently said, that Israel is only the first target. The entire planet will be under our rule. There will be no more Jews or Christian traitors. The entire 510 million square kilometers of planet Earth will come under a system where there is no injustice, no impression, no Zionism, no treacherous Christianity, and no killings and crimes like those being committed against the Palestinians and against the Arabs in all the Arab countries in Lebanon, in Syria, in Iraq, and in other countries. So their plan as jihadists is not just to get control of Israel, but to kill Jews. And then once they are done with that, to extend to other territories. And we need to understand that that is a reality. We need to understand that they probably are, all, are already planted in other countries, including our own. Let me just tell you about Hamas for just a second. The word Hamas is an acronym in Arabic that stands for the Islamic Revolution against Israel. But it's a word that actually comes from ancient language that's known as Aramaic, which Hebrew and Arabic have close relationship with. Okay, So what's interesting about this word Hamas 
is that it means two different things in each of the two languages. So if, if you were, and so let me say it this way. If you were to say it in the language to Israel, it means, or to Jews, it means one thing, and to Palestinians, it means another. In Arabic, which most Muslims speak, Hamas means zeal, or it means courage. But in Hebrew, the word means violence. So whenever they hear Hamas, the Palestinians hear zeal, courage, but the Jews hear violence. This is the ancient spirit of violence that goes back to the beginning of Genesis. I want to show you a verse in Genesis 6. It says this, when this were the days of Noah. It says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the whole earth was full of, everybody say this word, violence. That word, if it's translated, is the word Hamas here. Some words actually, trans, it, it, some translations actually translate it as possessed. It was possessed by a spirit of violence, a spirit of Hamas. What I want you to know is that Hamas is not a, a religious issue. It is a demonic spirit that dates back to the days of Noah. And the Lord flooded the earth because the spirit of Hamas had so flooded the earth that there was no turning back. Satan's purpose then and Satan's purpose now is to kill the seed that would deliver the Messiah. Now, I want to go back to the story of Isaac and Ishmael for just a moment. You've got Sarah, you've got her son Isaac, you've got Hagar, you've got her son Ishmael. Abraham has these two sons, he's got one covenant. There's conflict, and in that moment, Sarah decides to kick Hagar out of the house. And I want you to notice her response. This is what she says to Abram. Then Sarah, let me read it to you, then Sarah said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong that I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and between me. In her offense, Hagar was filled with the spirit of Hamas and committed Hamas against Sarah. This word, in, if you can go and look at the, the literation or the, the translation of this word, it is the word Hamas. And Abraham has to make a decision in this moment. He either chooses the Hamas spirit or he chooses the Holy Spirit. And he would choose the Holy Spirit and he kicked Hagar out of his home. And for centuries, the devil would try to wipe out the seed of Messiah, but it would not come to be. The reason Hamas is committed to this and the reason why they refuse to acknowledge Israel's right to exist is because they are fueled and they are infected by an ancient manifest hatred of the Jewish people. You need to realize something today, that if the Jews were to lay down their arms within 24 hours, there would be no Jews left. But if the opposite happened, if Hamas and Hezbollah laid down their arms, there could absolutely be peace. So you have to ask yourself this question, who is the one that is sparking the powder keg of war right now. I'm here to tell you today, it's not Israel. The second question is this, does Israel have a right to the land and to pursue peace? One of the narratives that is existing right now on social media is that Israel is an occupier, that they are an illegitimate state, that they stole this land, they need to give the land back, and that if they did that, then everything would be fine. They've only really been there a short time. They really have no rights whatsoever to claim the land as theirs. What I want to do for just a moment is I want to address that from three different standpoints. Let you kind of arrive at your own conclusions. I want to do that historically, politically, and spiritually. All right? First, historically, does Israel have a right to exist? Historically, there is absolutely no legitimate argument that can be made or has been made against the reality that Israel or that Jews have been in the land consistently for over 3,500 years. Now, over the last 2,000 years, the land has laid dormant. It has been occupied by a variety of people. 
But what you must know is that the land of Palestine has never been a sovereign territory. It has been under the control of different empires, dating back to the Ottoman Empire, to the Persian Empire. It was not in 1948 when Jews suddenly came back into the land. Jews have lived in the land consistently for the last 3,500 years. History, secular and biblical study affirms this. Archaeology affirms this. Ancestry affirms this. This ultimately roots back to the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and ultimately Jesus Christ our Lord. Jews have always lived in the land. Now, were there other people who lived in the land? Yes, but you cannot exclude Jewish people from the land. And you cannot make a case that it was not their ancestral homeland, their kingdom, and their national identity. When I have gone to Israel, and I have, I've been there a few times now, I, I see the inscriptions with my own eyes. Places that have been discovered. The Western Wall, the City of David, layer upon layer removed shows the ancient Jewish roots there. What about politically? Does Israel have a right to exist and to pursue peace? If you're interested in studying this politically, Alan Dershowitz has a book. He's a Harvard Law professor. It's called The Case for Israel. I think it'd be a good read for you to consider. Let me explain to you the political realities of Israel being in the land. The dream of Israel, or the dream of Jews all over the world who had been dispersed there, uh, they'd been dispersed all the way back from when the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., the, the dream of them returning to their homeland did not become a reality until 1948. It was a dream that dates back to the 19th century when certain Jewish leaders scattered throughout Europe dreamed to return home. Of course, many of you know that this is what's referred to as Zionism. Palestine was never a, sol a sovereign nation. So when people talk about Palestinians, they're actually talking about people that lived in a region that the Romans renamed Palestinian. Let me explain this to you. The reason that the region was even named Palestine in the first place is that when, when the Romans conquered the Jews after the Greeks, they wanted to humiliate Jewish people in, in such a way. They wanted to strip their national identity in such a way. Jews coming from the tribe of Judah. So they began to look at the Jewish writings of the Bible. And they discovered that the Jews' arch enemy in Scripture was the Philistines. Now, there is no F sound in Latin, so they chose to call it Palestinia. And they gave them the name Palestinians. So what you have to understand is that the very first Palestinians were not those living in the West Bank. It wasn't those living in Gaza. They were Jewish people who were taken into exile and humiliated. Palestine has never been a sovereign nation. It's never been a sovereign territory. It has always been controlled by empires dating back to the first century B.C. Now, let's fast forward. After World War I, the British Empire gains control of the land from the Ottoman Empire. The British Empire was ready to give the land back to Jewish people. They begin to have these conversations about what do we do with these Jews that are scattered all around. Jewish people are wanting to return back to the homeland uh, that they've been after. Uh, they they, they fill, fulfill this dream uh, of, of because of the persecution that it, they've experienced for thousands of years, living separate but in the land. So in 1917, the British uh, government wrote what was called the Balfour Declaration. You can read about this. The declaration announced the support for establishing a national home for the Jewish people in the region of Palestine for a small Jewish population. And I mean a small one. But it was also designed as a safeguard for Arabs that were living there. Okay? Their desire in 1917 was to try to come up and create a two-state solution from the very beginning. Of course, the Palestinians disagreed with this. They felt that the British Empire was trying to make decisions, trying to declare uh, what the territory should be without asking their opinion about what it belonged to. Of course, it didn't matter to them that years earlier when the Greeks and the Romans and others had made decisions about Jewish lands, they had disregarded a majority of the people's decisions and ideas that were living there before that. Years later, World War II takes place and we see the most abhorrent thing happen in a first world nation, a Christian nation, 6.5 million Jews are systematically rounded up, 
their property taken, Star of David placed on their arms to identify them. For over a decade, the populace is educated that Jews are not humans, that they're carriers of diseases, that they're spiritually wicked, that they're liars, and that they're trying to steal wealth and the world. Many were convinced that the best solution was not a two-state solution, but a final solution, the eradication of Jews from Europe. After World War II, the United Nations come together and they realize that something has to be done with all of these Jewish people. And so they recognize Israel for the first time as its own sovereign state. With Jews, Jewish refugees scattered all around Europe, kicked out of their homes, families murdered. The UN voted to partition the territory of Palestine into two new states, one Jewish and one Arab. The first nation to recognize Israel was the U.S. under Harry Truman. Prior to that, in 1937, Jews were trying to go back into the land. Unrest was being created, and so the British created the Peel Commission. It was their attempt to try to create a two-state solution. Immediately, the Arabs rejected it. In 1947, the Arabs are once again presented with a two-state solution, with a partition. The Arabs reject it. A year later, in 1948, when the United Nations recognizes a homeland for Israel as a nation, they declare their independence. Immediately, Arabs begin to wage war on Israel. Five Arab nations immediately attack the land, attack Israel, and they lose. And as a result of their attack and as a result of losing, they actually end up losing more land than they would have gained with the partition plan that was presented to them a year earlier in the first place. This is actually where the beginning and the start of the Palestinian refugee camps come from. They were created in 1948 after their own war that they waged. People blame Israel for the existence of these camps today, but it's the Palestinians that attacked and started the war, not the Jews. In 1967, the Soviet intelligence claims that Israel is planning a military campaign. As a result, Egypt begins to take action. They close the Strait of Tehran. They create a blockade near the border between them and Israel. They mobilize troops to invade Israel. As a result, Israel launched a preemptive attack against the Egyptian forces. The claims made by the Soviets, by the way, end up being false, shocking, Israel wins a miraculous battle that's known today as the Six-Day War. They not only defend their nation, but they conquer Gaza, the West Bank, and the Sinai. And how does Israel respond after the Six-Day War? After the war of these nations that initiated troop buildup on their border, promised imminent destruction to them, blockaded the Strait of Tehran, what do they do? They immediately give control of the Temple Mount back to the Arabs. In a show of good faith, in fact, Moshe Dayan is on record of saying this, the Israeli defense minister, we've returned to the holiest of our places never to be parted from them again. We did not come to conquer the sacred sites of others or to restrict their religious rights, but rather to ensure the integrity of the city and to live in it with others in fraternity. You want to know how the Arabs responded to this act of good faith? With the three no principle, no peace with Israel, no recognition of Israel, and no negotiation with Israel. In 1979, Israel voluntarily gave back the Sinai that they had gained in the Six-Day War. They gave it back to Egypt. In 1993, Israel shows a sign of peace. Uh, in a show of peace, agrees to recognize Palestinian authority, the governorship over the West Bank and the Gaza Strip and the Oslo Accord. In 2000, Israel offers Yasser Arafat statehood in the Gaza Strip, 94% of the West Bank, and Old Jerusalem as their capital. They immediately reject it and instead start the, the, the second Intimfata. I can never say this word. You know what I mean. A terrorist organization... Oh, let me go back. In 2005, Israel pulls out of Gaza, gives it to the Palestinians. What happens? As a result, Hamas gets elected. A terror organization founded in the 1980s on the destruction, founded on the destruction of Israel. They turn it into a terror state, much like ISIS did in Syria, much like the Al-Qaeda and the Taliban did in Afghanistan. 
In 2008, Israel says, we're going to offer everything that we offered in 2000. We're going to give you the Gaza Strip. We're going to give you 94% of the West Bank. They again reject it. From 2010 to 2021, Hamas launches thousands of rockets, terror attacks, and builds extensive underground tunnels under Gaza in order to kidnap, murder Israelis while taking in billions of dollars of international aid, including from the United States, which was meant for humanitarian purposes. Instead of improving their lives, instead of improving their infrastructure, the Hamas takes this money and uses the Palestinian people as human shields. They have, the, the leader of Hamas doesn't even live in Gaza. They, they move into other nations, they live in luxury, all while using the money to accumulate millions of dollars for the purposes of war. This week it was announced that the United States is going to give $100 million to Gaza for the purpose of humanitarian aid to a government that's ruled by terrorists. If you think that $100 million is going from Hamas to those people, I've got a timeshare to sell you after this service today. Which leads us to October 7, 2023. Hamas commits the worst attack of murder against Jewish people since the Holocaust. 1,300 murdered, over 5,000 injured, nearly 200 kidnapped, children beheaded, women raped, villages burned, 6,000 plus missiles launched, children who are being kidnapped, being forced to say Islamic prayers. And what does Israel get for defending itself? Threats from Hezbollah, who has taken over Lebanon. Threats from the Islamic Jihad on the West Bank. And people saying Israel has brought this on themselves and oppressed Palestinians. Yet explain to me how an innocent child brings beheading upon himself. And yet all across our world, members of our own government, people across our communities are gathering at universities, in Madrid, in London, in Paris, and waving Palestinian flags. And they're chanting, from the land to the sea, we will be free, which is the mantra of Hamas and Hezbollah, waving those flags, threatening and mocking. And people across the world are already beginning to chastise who? Hamas? No. Israel. Why not broker peace, they say. Why go to war? How could you not live in peace? No, friends. Israel is justified in this war. But Hamas is not stupid. They know that for Israel, whenever they attack like this, they create a double bind. What is that? That means that Israel in this war will either lose or they will lose. If Israel doesn't strike back, they will lose because this terrorist organization will continue to plot against them and to attack them. However, if they do respond, they will have to attack targets with civilians in them, which will lead to global protests around the world, and it's already happening. Some ask this, are there Palestinian Christians who love Jesus? Who are, are there Palestinians who are just caught up in this mess? Of course. There are Palestinian Muslims who would like to simply live their lives in peace, and if you gave them the option, they would do whatever it took to dwell in peace with Israel. Some people accuse Israel of being an apartheid state. If you don't know what that is, it's the accusation that Israel is racist, repressive, and creates racist legislation to basically prefer Jews over Muslims. Now, I want you to know this. There is no doubt that Israel has societal challenges. That involve racism and discrimination. However, what I would challenge you to do is go to Israel. 20% of its residents are, are non-Jewish. There are Arabs that are in the government of Israel. People are free to worship in mosques. They are free to worship in synagogues. If you're Jewish, walk down the streets of Gaza with the Star of David. See what happens to you. There are Arabs living, Palestinian Arabs that are living in Israel. There are no Jews that live in Gaza. What Hamas did when they came into power is they knew that Israel would retaliate. So they put their missile factories, their headquarters, their, their training centers, their bomb factories in tunnels under apartment complexes where people live. They put the, 
They, they, they put them under homes where normal people are so that every time Israel deals with them, there are civilian casualties. But Hamas does not care about human life. They are educating children in their schools that the highest call of their lives is to kill Jews and to die as Islamist martyrs and to go to paradise. They're educating their children the same way that Hitler did in the Third Reich, that Jews are descendants of apes, that they are not human, that Allah hates them, and that they'll get a greater reward for every Jew that they kill. Mothers are training children so that they grow up, that they'll strap a bomb onto themselves and kill as many Jews as possible. And then the parents get a government subsidy from Hamas because their child dies as a martyr. And if you die as a martyr... You get virgins in heaven. You are a rock star. You are celebrated. Your family is paid money. It's a movement that glorifies death. I'm here to tell you today that child indoctrination is not just taking place in America. It's happening all over the world, and there are spiritual implications involved in it. These people are anti-Semitic. They don't want a two-state solution. They want a final solution for the Jewish problem. And we're seeing it play out before us because it's an anti Jewish sentiment. I want you to know that I have compassion for many Palestinians because I really believe in my heart of hearts that there's a lot that don't want this conflict. But I have to be honest with you today, most Arabs living in Palestine hate Jews. And so what do we understand? We understand that there are times that peace is fought for, but war must happen. In fact, Romans actually talks about it. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. There is a time for war, according to Ecclesiastes. It teaches that. And it is brutal, and it is terrible, and it is awful. But you tell me, did Hamas warn Israel 48 hours in advance that they were coming? Israel dropped pamphlets and everything imaginable they've done to try to tell Palestinians, we're coming and we're going to deal with Hamas. And what is Hamas doing? They're blockading their own people, meeting them at front doors in their homes with armed soldiers, telling them, get back in your homes. We need to pray for the Palestinian, the peace-loving Palestinian people. And these are complex issues, but we have to understand that many Palestinians do not want peace. This is the spiritual reality that they live in, but they are not prisoners to Israel. They are prisoners to Islamic terrorists. What about spiritually? Do they have a right to the land spiritually? Well, if you're a believer, then obviously this is ironclad. As a Christian, not only do I believe in the spiritual blessing of Abraham that's been given to us as Gentiles, but I believe in the everlasting covenant that God made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that contains and includes the land. You see, God made an everlasting covenant with Abraham, a promise from one generation to another. God describes it as everlasting. In Genesis 15, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Genesis 17, it goes on to say it, and I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an, everybody say it with me, an everlasting possession. The word everlasting is not conditional. If the word everlasting was conditional to Israel, you should shake in your boots as Gentiles about your own salvation. Because if it doesn't mean it to the land, it doesn't mean it to your salvation. But I want you to know that God is not like man, that he should lie. God is not faithless, man is, is faithless, and God remains faithful. Man breaks his covenant, but God keeps his covenant to a thousand generations. And when he made that covenant with Abraham, he meant it, and it does not end. God gave them that land from the beginning. They took possession of the land, and throughout history, even as they've been conquered by the Greeks, and conquered by the Romans, and conquered by the Persians, as they've been oppressed by Muslims, and Protestants, and Europeans, God has gathered them back together repeatedly, from the north, and the south, and the east, and the west. No other nation has ever that has ever existed has been wiped out, and then been brought back to life again. It's a fulfillment of Ezekiel 37. Can these 
bones live. And the Jews have taken up residency, even if it's unbelief in this time. But the story is still being written. Number three, does all of this have biblical relevance? If you think about it, the amount of hate that has existed throughout human history for Jewish people doesn't make any sense. There's never been a people group throughout human history that other people have hated so much. Show me another that that has experienced the genocide that Jews have experienced. It's because there's an everlasting covenant that exists with them. There's, There's a controversy that's going on right now between Jews and the devil himself. I want, I want to kind of give you a Bible thought for just a second, so bear with me. In the book of Esther, we read about a young Jewish woman living in the Persian Empire. That empire today is modern-day Iran. If you've ever read Esther, you know that she becomes the queen, and she has an uncle named Mordecai. Well, in one portion of Esther, Mordecai encounters one of the king's lead men. His name is Haman. Haman is riding through the streets, and everybody is bowing down. But if you read the scripture, Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman. He refuses. And the Bible tells us that Haman is filled with rage and he conspires in that moment to kill all the Jews in the Persian Empire. Now, you have to realize what a task that would be. Okay, I mean, Persia literally extended from India to Libya. This is a a gigantic, a massive kingdom. But he goes to the king and he tells the king, there are people in your kingdom that will not bow down and they're evil and they're unclean and they're trouble for you in your kingdom and your kingdom will be better if you get rid of them. The Bible calls Haman in Esther 9 an enemy of the Jews. You can read it yourself. And he attempts to wipe them out. It's the first attempted holocaust in human history. Now let me tell you something about this man. The Bible tells us that Haman was an Agagite. Agagites were people that lived in the southern wilderness of Israel. By the way, it's the exact place that the terrorist attacks took place on October 7th. The Agagites were descended from the Amalekites. Why are the Amalekites important? Because when Israel left Egypt and started to head to the promised land, they were the very first people to meet Israel and try to declare war on them and to try to wipe out the Jewish people to take possession of the land. I want you to think about this. Years and years later, a descendant from the tribe of Amalekites named Haman tries to wipe out the exact same people group living in the Persian Empire. If you think about it, they didn't bow. It was an illogical hatred that Haman had. It was an illogical hatred that the Amalekites had. And it's illogical today. This ancient hatred of Jews has been passed down from generation to generation, and it will not slow down today. Friends, it will only continue, and it will only ramp up until the fulfillment of Zechariah 12, where Jerusalem's enemies will be destroyed. The ancient demon of anti-Semitism is alive in our world today. It's alive in governments. It's alive in professors across the world. And I want to be clear today. I don't support Israel because Israel does everything perfectly. They do not. They do a lot of things wrong because they're still dwelling in the land with unbelief. But I stand with the nation of Israel because I believe in the covenant promises connected to God and the kingdom of God and his covenant with the Jewish people. And I stand with them because I believe that part of the church's responsibility at the end of the age is to provoke Israel to jealousy, to have their eyes open to Jesus, and to receive him prior to the returning of Jesus to our earth. I want you to know... I want you to know there are not two covenants, there is one way to the kingdom of heaven. The Jews are not saved by law and the Christians saved by grace. There is one name by which men can be saved and his name is Jesus. There is one gospel to the Jew first, but also to the Gentiles. Make no mistake about it. God said this in Psalm 137, if I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. And I'm here to tell you today that man may forget Israel, but God does not. 
Man may be trying to bury the Jews, but God will, res- will resurrect them and cause them to rise up again. And what I want you to know is that human history is not flat. Human history is ramping up. And the same Jesus who ascended on his throne in heaven will come back for his church. He will step back into history. He will destroy his enemies. And he will come for his people. It was a promise that he promised to David when he said, a descendant will come to your family that will descend on the throne forever. That's why Luke 1 describes him from the line of David. That's why Romans 1 says he is from the seat of David. Revelation calls him the lion and the lamb. The fulfillment of all the divine promise. But make no mistake about it. There is a storm that's coming. There is a storm. And that's what I want to talk about as I close today. It's this. Where's all this headed? I want to read you a verse of scripture in Jeremiah 30. It says this. Behold the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth. A whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn his back until he has executed and accomplished the intentions of his mind. Then it says this, that in the latter days, you will understand this. The latter days. And the call of God for us is to understand it. Because before the return of the Lord, Israel become the focus of the entire world in some of the hardest days that human history has ever seen. I want to close with this thought that I think is, is really important. So I want you to listen closely because everything I've been saying in reality has sort of been building to this thought. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, the Bible prophesies what will happen in the last days before or with Israel before the return of Christ. Now, some people believe that this is about, the re- before the return of Christ, some, some scholars believe that this is, you know, during the tribulation period. So we, we don't know for sure. And it can get a little bit complicated if you try to read Ezekiel 38 and 39. I can tell you, I I don't totally even get it all. But Ezekiel starts to list all these various nations surrounding Israel at that time. So you've got Gog and Magog and and the sort. These were were the surrounding countries that surrounded Israel at this time. So today, like we know that Canada is at our north. We know that Mexico is at our south. Imagine if in a few thousand years there were other governments in these regions. And what we read said, you know, Canada and, and Mexico. So Ezekiel 38 is naming all these nations. And we know exactly where the boundaries are that's listed. And what it says in Ezekiel is that there would be an evasion upon Israel from the north and that there would be a coordinated effort to do three things. Number one, to take the land. Number two, to destroy the lineage. And number three, to oppose the Lord. I want to show you a map here for just a second and let you see this. Uh, this battle that is being talked about, by the way, Revelation calls it the Battle of Armageddon. And I want you to just look at this map for just a second. There's, by the way, if you're struggling to see it, my eyes are getting bad too. But this arrow is pointing this little tiny purple spot. I don't know if you can see it. (laughs) That's the nation of Israel. (laughs) It's insane if you think about it, isn't it? In the north, Gog and Magog is Russia. I don't know if you know this, but I made sure to do my research on this. Russia today is 13.5% Muslim. 20 million Muslim people live in Russia. It is the largest Muslim population in in Europe. The nation of Persia and Kush is Iran. By the way, I'll say this. I don't think I'm saying anything crazy. I believe... Iran is the puppet master for everything that's happening right now in the Middle East. They have trained and they have equipped Hamas and Hezbollah, from which is firing right now from the north, and whom I am very skeptical will not try to enter this conflict. Gomar and Beth Togar that are listed, is that's Turkey, which is a Muslim country. Iran, fully Muslim. Turkey, fully Muslim. Parts of Russia, Muslim. In the south, it talks about Libya, and that is the Islamic, uh, that is Islamic Ethiopia, which is Muslim, and possibly parts of Sudan and Central Africa. And that there's going to be a time where all of these nations are going to invade this one small, tiny little region of the world. 
The question that many are asking right now is, are we entering into the Ezekiel 38-39 war? I want you to know, I don't know. What we do know is that if Iran enters the war, Turkey and Russia will go with them, and behind them, North Korea and China. If there is an attack from the south, now we're looking at World War III and what I really consider to be the war to end all wars. Is it going to happen? I don't know. Look, what you have to know is Israel has been attacked, by, been attacked so many times, and, and, and we've not gotten there yet. Even, even the Thessalonians were asking the question, are we there yet? Are we here? Are we in those days? A few thousand years earlier. But I believe that the spirit of Hamas will be working in these nations to do the same thing that it did in the days of Noah and in the days of Ishmael. And that is to, to end that lineage and to stop the will of the Lord. But what I want you to know is that at the end of Ezekiel 38 and 39, there's this tremendous hope. Because it's this horrible war, it predicts that Israel will lose. It predicts that Israel will lose the land, that they would be eradicated as a people, that the will of the Lord would be thwarted. But in the darkest moment that the world has ever seen, Jesus Christ returns and comes down to win the war that Israel would otherwise lose. Because I'm here to tell you today, friends, that this land does not belong to Hamas. It doesn't belong to Muslims. It belongs to Jesus, who the Bible calls the seed of Abraham. And I want you to know that he's coming back from his, for his land. He's coming back for his people. And he's coming back as a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And he will restore the land. And when he does, there will be a revival amongst the Jewish people. And the Spirit of God will be poured out on the nation of Israel. Matthew 24 tells us that, that Jesus will return. And as his return draws closer, the whole earth will feel the intensity like birthing pains upon a woman. And when he comes, friends, I need you to know that he will pour out his wrath upon the earth. But the Bible also tells us that as believers, we are not destined for that wrath. That wrath is coming, but it is not for the children of God if you receive salvation through Jesus Christ. Leads me to this final thought today. What should Christians do? How do we respond in this hour? In a sober, Christ-honoring urgent manner. The first thing that we have to do as a church is we have to pray for Israel. We must be watchmen on the wall until God does his work in Jerusalem and it's fulfilled in the earth again. They're not there yet. I want you to know the Jews are not. And if you were to go into certain orthodox sections of Jerusalem right now, you would experience a very different Jew than the one that you may have imagined in your mind. They're very hostile to Christians as Pastor Chad has showed you whenever he has come here. They live in unbelief. There is a veil over their eyes and a hardening of their hearts. But there will be a moment that they look up and they realize the gravity is what be, has become of them. And we must, we must, we must, we must pray for them. The second thing we must do is we must pray for all of Palestinians and all those who live in the Middle East. I'm praying just like God opened the eyes of Paul the assassin, Saul the assassin, I'm praying that he'll open the eyes of members of Hamas. In fact, I read an article this morning. It was on one of the news outlets about one of Hamas's military uh, or generals, one of their main leaders. Their son, his son went to a military prison and was converted and converted to Christianity while he was there because of the atrocities that he saw. I believe that he can make some of these members some of the greatest evangelists to the Arab people that we have ever seen. Amen, everybody? Can he do that? Well, he's done it to ISIS soldiers. Why can't he do it there? I'm praying for Palestinian believers who can't win right now. Their Palestinian neighbors think they've abandoned the faith and the Jews can't stand them either. I'm praying that as terrible as the turmoil is in the Middle East, that the gospel would advance to every man, every woman, every child. Jesus died for them. Jesus loves them. And we're not gonna get caught up in the hatred. As a people, we are called to be people that intercede for them. Number three, I'm going to say this, and I'm going to, it's going to be very strong what I'm about to say. But I need you to know that I say this in love as your pastor today. You must be biblically informed. You are living right now 
in the times that the Bible prophesied about. Turn off Netflix and get into a Bible study. Stop forsaking the gathering with other believers and learn. This is not a time for you to be lazy in your faith. We need each other more. We need each other more than ever to be in the Word more than ever. Study this stuff. Because the truth is, and this is for me included, we know, we know far too much about sports and our favorite musicians and our favorite songs and not nearly enough about our Bibles. We need to grow in our faith so that we can help others because people are going to be afraid at the end of the age. When people are asking, what does this all mean? You as a believer have a high calling on your life to be able to answer their questions as you're directed and led by the Holy Spirit. And the fourth thing is this, that you must prepare your heart for the coming storm. I want to say this to every person in this room today. This is not a time to play games with God. This is not a time to become an apathetic Christian. This isn't a time to say, someday, someday, someday I'll live out your purposes. Someday I'll say yes to you. Someday I'll turn my life over to you. Just let me have this time right now, God. No. When Jesus comes, it is too late. Do you think he's really coming, Dusty? I do. The odds of Israel becoming a nation after 2,000 years are absolutely so low, it's crazy. Plug it into GP, chat GPT and look at all the zeros. This is not a time to be a scoffer. This is a time to realize that thousands of year old prophecies are being fulfilled right now. This is a time for you to say yes to the plans and the purposes of God. Because God predestined you that you would not live separated, but that you would have deep and meaningful relationship with you. And he sent his son Jesus to the cross. And Jesus died on that cross willingly so that your life as a sinner could come back into life and fellowship with God again. I want you to bow your heads all over this room with me today. Father, we pray right now for the nation of Israel. In fact, I want you to stand with me. Would you just do this right now? I know I've kept you a long time today. And I want us to just pray. I want every single person right now to join with me. Father, we pray for the nation of Israel. These are your chosen people. You called them that. You asked us to pray for them. All throughout your word, you have promises about them. And Lord, we surrender to the purposes that you have for these people. And we ask God for your perfect will to be done. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that there would be people that rise up to deliver the word of God, that they would receive the gospel, and that there would be repentance and salvation that takes place. Lord, we pray right now for these people. We pray for the protection. We pray for the peace of Israel. Lord, I pray, God, for these Christians that are rising up in these Palestinian nations, God, these, these Muslim nations. We pray that the gospel would spread in Iran. The gospel would spread in Syria. The gospel would spread in Iraq. The gospel would spread in Lebanon, Lord. The gospel would spread in Egypt. We ask right now, Lord Jesus, that your plans that you gave us over 4,000 years ago, starting with that Abrahamic promise, would be fulfilled in these people, God. That you loved them and you died for them. We pray for Palestinian Christians right now. We stand with them. We ask for you to help them right now. And then we pray for every man, woman, child that's in this room today. And for you that maybe don't have a relationship with God, I want you to know that there's never been a time to say yes to Jesus more than the time you're living in right now this very moment. And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, consider this today, a prophetic warning, a prophetic warning of what's coming in our world. 
I don't know when it's happening, but it will happen. And Jesus loves you. And if you've never given your life to Jesus right now in this moment, not out of fear, not out of manipulation, not out of a fear of hell, but, but a, a deep like love, like, God, I want you to be the God of my life. Today, I want you to surrender to him. The enemy will tell you, wait, do it another time. But I'm telling you, right now is the best time. And right now, if you've never given your life to Jesus and you'd say, Dusty, will you count me in that prayer? Would you just guide me in this moment? I want you to lift your hands on the count of three. Lift it real high to say yes to Jesus. One, two, three. Come on, lift it high. I need to say yes to his plans. I need to say yes to his promises. I need a relationship with him. Right now, hands going up, saying yes to Jesus. And if that's you today, then what I'm gonna ask you to do is just to pray this simple prayer with me. I want you to remember that God doesn't care how fancy you sound. He just cares that this prayer comes from you, comes from your heart. So just say to him, dear Heavenly Father, be the Lord of my life today. I repent of my sin. I ask you to come and live on the inside of me. I ask you, Lord, to save me. Thank you for your love for me, that you sent your son Jesus to the cross. God, I want a relationship with you. I ask you right now to come and live inside of me for the rest of my life. And I thank you for it right now. In Jesus' name, I pray. Everybody say amen in the room. Come on, will you just clap your hands and thank God for his word today. Well, hey, Heartland Church, can we just real quick thank our pastor, Pastor Dusty, for that great message. You know, uh, I think we like to think that all messages, all sermons are created equal, but in reality, they're you know, I, I hate to say this, but they're not. I mean, a message like that takes so much preparation and study, more so than usual. And I'm just thankful that we have a pastor that's willing to tackle the hard things. Amen. Um, so thank you, Pastor Dusty. Appreciate you, man. Well, hey, uh, listen, we celebrate with all of you who gave your life to Jesus for the very first time. It's the greatest decision that you could ever make. And we want to help you on your faith journey with Jesus, okay? Because this isn't the, the finish line, it's the starting point, all right? And so if you did give your life to Jesus, we wanna put resources in your hand. We wanna give you a Bible if you don't have one. And so please, meet us out in our connections area, out in our, our lobby right there. And uh, we have a team of people that are ready and waiting for you to help you out with whatever you need, okay? Well, everybody, thank you so much for remembering your church as you give. Uh, there's many different ways to give, as you can see on the screen behind me. You can drop them in the boxes as you leave online, through text, whatever is easiest for you. And thank you so much for remembering your church and your finances. But uh, what I'd love to do is just pray us out and then our worship team is gonna sing us out. And so let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you so much, Jesus. Thank you for this amazing message today. And, and God, we just pray in Jesus' name that you would use it and encourage us and, and lift us up in this season. And we'll continue to pray for Israel throughout the week. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said amen and amen. Heartland, we love you so much. You guys be blessed. And we'll see you next Sunday. You are powerful, God above it Oh